Blog Talk Radio. One, two, three, four. Been away for so long Nobody knows where you've gone I hear you living in L.A. I hope you're doing okay You make it seem like no one cares You disappear for a thousand years So isolated with the life you choose Eggs are frying in a frying pan Like Major Tom and the Rocket Man Is there another way for you to go To save your soul You're living hard on overload You're moving fast dangerous road Pills and cocaine up your nose We know how the story goes Long way up but a short way down It only hurts when you hit the ground Flying high is your only friend We know how the story ends The eggs are frying in a frying pan Like Major Tom and the Rocket Man Is there another way for you to go To save your soul You want to feel like no one feels Even though you know the pleasure kills Can't see the hands reaching out for you Trying to pull you to the light
while we're waiting on on our guests to join us, let's think about this for a minute. With everything that has been going on for the last, seems like forever, there has been a lot of true characters that have come out of people's moods and thoughts and everyday lives and a lot of anger, a lot of divide, a lot of hate, a lot of vitriol. I was talking about this with a friend of mine today, and and it's so sad that I have seen this coming since the 1990s. This country, America, has, has become so divided and so... I'm not sure what. There's a a different thing going on, and and it bothers me because if if one isn't on a certain side of the fence, one is hated. I've been told that they wish I would die and I was stupid and just all kinds of ugliness because of the stand that I take on certain things. And I don't mind a good debate. I'll debate both sides of the issues. I will ask the hard questions. But I never resort to name-calling, nor do I ever resort to tearing a person down for their opinion, because my feeling is this. If someone has an opinion, that is exactly what it is. It is an opinion. It is how they see things in their mind and there is nothing wrong with that what we have to understand as human beings is all of us have opinions and and all of us have things we believe strongly in and there's no compromise and that's okay at the end of the day if we agree to disagree on an adult level instead of the schoolyard kicking sand in one's face that we both have won because we've both taken the time to listen to each other, to understand each other's point of view, and to know that it is a beautiful world because we have chosen to listen. Just because we listen to an opposing side does not mean that we have to agree with it. It just means that we're willing to listen. My mother who I lost in 2018, was a very wise woman. And this is what he told me, she told me. She said, Yvonne, I always read a book with an open mind. Even the most horrible book that you run across, read it with an open mind, because when you read it with an open mind, you find something. You learn something. You may learn one thing, but you learn something. We, as a nation and as a world, have forgotten how to do that. We have forgotten how to learn something. So I put things on my Facebook page to get reaction. Sometimes I put them on there because that is really where I stand on an issue. I think our guest is here. Hi, James. Hey. How are you? Hi, Bon. How are you? 
I am fine. What have you been doing? Well, getting by like the rest of America right now, although probably <laughs> with different different mindsets than most of America. Uh, you know, I, I have so many people who I have to restrain myself with because you don't want to become unpopular right now in your community. This is a this is a sketchy time. And things could turn at any moment to something even more sketchy because, well, there are 400 million guns in this country, and we've never had that before. And also, they came out with employment rates where 14.9 million are unemployed. I don't know why they're lying about that because I can look at my town and the surrounding communities, and I went to Chicago. And it's not easy, it's not too difficult to hypothecate, but it's closer to uh, 50 million or more than that. And that means that there are a lot of poor people who are getting to the point where substance, you know, the, the sustenance is, is not going to be there. And we, the president currently doesn't even like the idea of having food lines or subsidizing that because... Well, because it's socialist. But many times through societies, and of course my background is anthropology and sociology and physics, and then my life experience out in the world was primarily in field operations with the CIA. But when when you have that kind of experience, then you see things uh, come in stages in the places that you are. And then this pattern begins to reform back home, which it's never it's never done before. You don't you don't by and large feed the poor or feed the downtrodden if you have substance and a lot of money because you're a wonderful person. Many times it's divorcing yourself from integrity and ethics that allows you to have a lot of what you have. You do that, you feed the poor, and you take care of the infirm and the agent because you don't want them to come for you. Okay? I mean, living, living in chateaued walls, traveling in limos and on private aircraft is the lap of luxury. It's also very quickly the lap of ignorance because you lose your contact. You see it many times. I, I like to use the uh, analogy of very successful uh, movie stars or authors, uh, screenwriters even. They start out with fantastic work that they develop when they're younger. And later on, they can't do the creative stuff anymore because they got great success and then they remove themselves from society. And they joined a set of people that aren't real. And therefore, the experiences they then write about are not ones that reach into people's hearts. Because many times these people are among people who don't have that organ the way we know it as an emotional organ. They only have it in a physical sense. But anyway, so I've been... I've been at this life for quite a while, and this is a nervous time for me because of that life experience, and also a nervous time for necessarily presenting it at home. My op-eds in my local newspaper that I run are very much uh, dealing with this, but in a, a gentler way than we talk about on this show, because 
probably not too many people locally are listening to the show, although there will be more now since Chuck, my IT guy, started putting you all over my web pages and Facebook pages. And I have a I have a circle of people around, I guess, 75, 80,000 people that that pay attention to me. Um, and then I try to use that. Earlier I didn't, but now I try to use it as responsibly as possible. And part part of that is trying to tell the truth about what you think, not necessarily about what is. I mean, what is is a very difficult thing to discover. I left anthropology to go into physics, into into quantum theory, because I didn't like the lack of reality in anthropology. Every time we found something that disproved a law or a rule, we discounted what we found and called that an anomaly and set it aside. You know, nobody still wants to deal with what happened to the mammoth and the mastodons up in Siberia that froze to death almost overnight with tropical fruits in their bellies 25,000 years ago. Well, that's not explainable by uh, glacial activity or mild tectonic something. Something 25,000 years ago happened. Well, no one wanted to deal with that, among other mysteries. So I went into physics where I could find truth. And then I discovered the, uh, you know, just at that time, Heisenberg and and the uh, the observer uh, phenomena came about where how you look at something changes or determines the effect of what you're seeing. And therefore, we became God. Well, I don't think the universe is set up that way. And I didn't like the results of that theory. Uh, and I still don't today. And I, I don't accept it. I think I think things are are partially predetermined by the physical environment, but a whole lot determined by our free will. And I think there are a lot of things that don't respond to us being the observer very kindly either. But, you know, in, in so doing as an observer out here, then I, I started writing my books about my life experience out in the world as a, as an agent for the government, which is entertaining. I mean, it was, uh, I, that's 17 years. Wow. Do I miss it? Yeah. Why? Because I really loved running on all 12 cylinders, being required to landing in Addis Ababa. And, of course, all the missions I had, none of them worked the way they were supposed to. So that meant you had to adapt and you had to find a solution. And I I love that part of it, finding those solutions. And then over time, finding them with as little violence as possible. Uh and that made me unpopular in Washington the more I did that. Violence, there are many forms of our government that that are formed in violence and trained in violence and then want to do the violence so they can see how it works, so they can test it, so they can get new weaponry by getting rid of the old weaponry. And so if you're not using the Navy SEALs, Instead, you're taking your whole mission money, which I did once, and paid a bribe to somebody to get what we wanted. And uh, and then the SEALs didn't get used, the nuclear submarine didn't get used, and the Navy was mad, the Marine Corps was mad, everybody was mad. But I here I had the uh, mission accomplished 100% successfully in three days. 
which they thought was going to be this huge drop-in operation. We're going to break into these headquarters, get this stuff. And and then, then of course, after the mission's over and I get complimented for the success, I get called back to Washington because we don't bribe people. We might kill them, but we don't bribe people to get what we want. And, and We've so been I bribe, got, bribing well, people for years. But not not on top of the table. That has to be done. On, you know, and here I was saying, yeah, of course I bribed them in my report. And that's what they were talking about. So I got chastised for that. But my track record was good enough where that time I didn't get fired. I was fired three times in my career with the agency. But very few people understand that that kind of work is totally tied to relationships what does that mean? Well, if you go out there in the world and you meet people and you become, shall we say, friendly with them and vice versa, where there's trust, because trust internationally is really hard to build. It takes time and it takes performance. It isn't, isn't based on, you know, what you say your background is or your money or anything else. And so here you are fired. And a month later, there appears at your door. Hi, can we talk to you? Sure. And then they say, your blood brother to Mangasutu Butalezi, chief of the Zulus. That's true. We need to get a message to the chief that he will believe. He will believe you. He won't even accept us in his presence or anybody that he thinks might be us. And he's certainly not going to trust another white man because um, he's Zulu. So here's the message we want you to give him that he will believe because it comes from you and he will believe you because he trusts you. This is how the agency operates. And then at that point, you as an agent have a choice to make now for national security and other motivations that you might be convinced of you, you might do that. But uh, you also know that you're completely burning up the relationship. Butalese is a wonderful man, a great leader that he was back then. And uh, you're going to destroy all that. Is the price worth it? And also, is your trust strong enough with the agency to believe what the agency is telling you that you're going to have to sacrifice? That's how the agency really works. So if you deliver that message you're unfired and back in play and everything is forgiven and then you're fired for something else until they need another relationship that you have i was friends with hugo chavez uh, margaret thatcher uh, mrs bush uh, senior barbara wonderful woman uh, certain people that i had relationships with because i had performed they had seen the performance and would be really the only people to know it. And then you, you become trusted by them. And uh, of course, if you're working for the white house, the agency's always mad at you because the white house has things that they don't want the agency to know. You'll notice that under, under uh, the current president, he doesn't trust the intelligence agencies at all. And a lot of them haven't uh, and they need things done that they don't want them to know because, well, they don't want anybody writing their book about them, which right. I don't do in my, in all of my works, in my, uh, my spy stories, if you will, the thrillers, uh, the Bering Sea or whatever you, you never see any revelations of, 
of those relationships or secrets or, or for that matter, classified material. Because I am a patriot. I have been all the way along in Vietnam where I was so such a bad tour and so badly wounded didn't change any of that. I still think the American dream is a wonder, the, the dream itself that we're pursuing this, that we have been pursuing this with stops and starts and stutters like we're in right now. But we're in pursuit of this grand dream that so many countries of the world, the people don't even have any dream at all. Uh, It's just, uh, it's just, it's, it's always been wonderful to come home to the dream and then to naturally put up with those parts of the dream that are uncomfortable and not working. And, uh, Right now, you know, whenever you start suspending parts of that grand constitution, I start getting worried. Uh, I've never been a big proponent of people who tell me they follow the constitution, mostly because I've never found that many people who really understand and have really read the constitution. I've been even, I've even been quoted by scholars, uh, sections from the Declaration of Independence that they claimed were from the Constitution. And I'm going, well, well, wait a minute here. There's our contiguous documents, but, you know, there's a, there's a distinction there uh, that you have to make, but you can't tell them that. Otherwise, you won't have a relationship with them anymore. And so a lot of times you just have to be silent. Uh, and so I've written these books. I have seven published now. Uh, Two of them are, you know, a friend of mine said, you know, I'm just finishing the third book of 30 Days Has September. Uh, I always felt guilty that I only served 30 days in Vietnam. I was a company commander uh, as a second lieutenant for weird reasons that are all laid out in the books. But the books will end up being, when I'm done, I'm second to the last chapter of the third book now, the third 10 days. Uh, the books will will be as long or longer than the Count of Monte Cristo, 1,200 pages to cover 30 wow. days, as as my friend says, you know, uh, the thousand the thousand day 30 day time. But you see, it like in the uh, the spy novels, it's the detail that I put in that I think the core group that read me, I can't get I can't get regular publisher, I can't get Hollywood interested. I mean. Uh, I, I get uh, some of the combat veterans who say this should be taught at the basic school or or Annapolis or something, but the military is not going to teach these books because they are not in the mythology. They don't follow it. I'm not right. writing the books to get people to go, okay? I'm writing the books in reality of how it is to serve. And also as a primer, if you are going to go into combat, you need to read these three books to keep you alive those first five days or you're not going to be alive. If you go there with your training and with the mythology backing you up, you are not going to live very long, period. They're called fucking new guys for a reason. That's because they come in and we put them at point in the company. Uh, or if, if they're a bad officer, they just get killed by their own men because right. their own men will not risk themselves. Everybody in combat is trying to survive. 2.7 million men served in Vietnam, 375,000 only saw ground combat. Of those 375,000, 362,000 were killed or wounded. Do the math, okay? Uh, and that means also you're not going to talk in real life out here 
to too many real combat veterans, not that have been shot, recovered, shot other people intentionally and all that. Usually you get the reports from the remainder of the 2.7 million that served in the rear, and many did wonderful jobs. I never fault them sending me the artillery and the supplies that I needed. Oh, my God, they did a wonderful job. But they weren't in the bottom of the belly of the Aishau Valley beast by any stretch right. of the imagination. And that means it's very difficult to communicate. So the 30 Days Has September series is all the detail that I lived. And I, I was given this strange eidetic memory, so it all comes back. Uh, and and the wonderful thing is, is many of my supporters are the combat veterans themselves that I did not think would speak out. I thought when I wrote the first chapter and put it online by accident, because Chuck Bartok, my IT guy, demanded that I have some new stuff for a new website. I dug out the old manuscript I'd tried to write when I came home. And I finally revived it, wrote the first chapter, and thought, well, this is going to be this is going to be really big. Who's going to buy this shit? Right. And they did, and and the and the contacts started coming. And I never get bad comments. I, I have I have 107 to answer right now. In the last three years since I started those three books, I've answered 29,488 comments personally. Every one. Every night, I, I I have to answer these vets. They are so poignant in in their criticisms of the work and stuff that I have to. I'm just driven to answer each and every one myself. Uh, and of course, my wife said, "Well, what happens if you know this really took off and you had ten thousand a day? You know, I mean, well, you would reach the point of impossibility." But right now, it's still not that. Tonight, I will be at the hundred or over a hundred comments that I've got there and looking at each one to figure out, you know, they say some of the most interesting things, but they also give me compliments that I never expected in my life. I mean, I just got one from a 70 year old female, uh, uh, librarian. She retired as a librarian a couple of years ago. She was a librarian for 50 years. And she writes this compliment. Amazing. And I sat there stunned because what she said, she said, in the 50 years of being a librarian, I've been a, a wild reader of everything. And I've never read, I've never read a more poignant work than this. And that was her whole comment. And I just sat there going, who gets that? And what do you do with it? It's not even a believable compliment. I mean, I had to take it, bring my wife up to the computer and have her read it so I would have in the family a record that I really didn't <laughs> get this compliment. And, I, and, and those, those helped keep me going because the last few chapters of the book, I lost a lot of people. And, uh, and I was the company commander. It is so hard to not accept responsibility through the years. But the veterans gave me so much therapy in the last three years. I thought I was the shittiest second lieutenant in the shittiest unit in the shittiest place on earth and doing well, a lousy job. Well, the last part job. of that is true. Well, <laughs> and then <laughs> I came to discover from the vets, you know, a guy be serving uh, 10 kilometers from me. This is exactly what happened to me. He's, I'm going, What? 
uh, and I started to grow in my own respect for what I had been through saying, well, maybe, maybe I wasn't so bad. You know, maybe they called me junior. I was, I never got to be Lieutenant Strauss. I was called junior from day one because my first two initials are J.R. And they didn't appreciate new lieutenants in this weathered, tough unit. And so they called me junior. I tried to get them to call me lieutenant. The gunny informed me that the previous six officers had been killed by the company and not the enemy. Would I like to join them? (laughs) And I said, no, they can call me junior all they want. (laughs) And so for my whole time in Vietnam, I became junior. In fact, it was it followed me home when I was in shot and then sent finally to uh, Oakland Naval Hospital in in San Francisco or Oakland. Uh, they found out somehow the, the medical staff found out I was junior and whoever gave them the rendition. Basically, I was a baby killer. I had a real rough go uh, with my surgeries in, in Oakland and getting the hell out of there. And then I got a transfer for the end of my service to get medical. Before I could get medical out, they make you serve in some uh, other command. So I was sent to Camp Pendleton, and what a great day that was. Nobody knew I was junior. And, of course, I wasn't going to tell them. But the 30 days have September hopefully will be a definitive work. I mean, uh, about, uh, you know, there's elements of catch 22 in it, elements of platoon, but not, and, and other great movies where they've had wonderful screenwriters like full metal jacket, which has some great pieces in it. But this is, this is all of that from beginning to end. And then of course I start the fourth novel. I hope to finish next week and I will start the fourth novel which is to be called The Cowardly Lion after The Wizard of Oz. Uh-huh. Uh, the, why, why would I call myself The Cowardly Lion? Because of the adaptation I had to make, because of the post-traumatic stress, I had to somehow live with and, and not express. I had to stay away from bars. I had to stay away from bikers. I had to stay away from macho people and road rage. Why? because I could not bring to bear the tools and the stuff and knowledge that I had used to survive so well. I couldn't use, you can't bring them here. Only Arnold Schwarzenegger and Sylvester Stallone and people like that can use them on the movie screen. They can kill people willy nilly in America because the guy was a bad guy. Everybody lets them go. The real world isn't like, okay. No, it isn't. Especially, especially during Vietnam. Vietnam was, was my war. I, I lost a lot of friends there, and my first husband was in Vietnam, and he, he came back very, very damaged. That's one of the reasons our marriage and so didn't did last. I. He was extremely so damaged and never recovered. And neither have I. I mean, if, it depends. I, I Of course, I, I have the good fortune uh, that uh, my wife has stuck with me all of these years, and I had that great good fortune. I mean, if I had not landed where I did and and been dumped out at Camp Pendleton uh, into the service of Richard Nixon at the Western White House. Uh, that's another weird one. But meanwhile, I had my wonderful wife and child, and I was in San Clemente. Uh, I started hanging out with the lifeguards and then the cops. I became a part-time officer there working on the Nixon estate when he was there and then working for the PD when he wasn't. But I had this circle of guys 
none of whom were Vietnam veterans. And so I didn't have to be one. I, I didn't have to be that guy. I mean, it's why? sort of like why I can't, I can't hang out with Macho. I have a lot more control over it now because that poor guy in the bar that's threatening me, he's thinking of kicking my ass or some other crazy thing. I'm not thinking that at all. Okay, he has no idea what he's standing in front of. I look like a milk toast. Thank God it really helped as a spy, as an active agent in the field. I never look the role. But right. Walter Mitty, Walter Mitty lives here. Junior is still in there. Uh, it's just that you can't have Junior conduct your life or you won't have one for very long, not in this culture. No. And so, you know, that's what the 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 coward that's why the cowardly line is called that. Uh so that I could, you know, I, I will reiterate how you come home, how you get through and use PTSD for your benefit. I became a writer because of post traumatic stress. I could not sleep at night. And that kept my family awake and worried all the time. I mean, I would go two or three nights in a row with no sleep and then work the days in between. And do it. I mean, load up on coffee or whatever. And But it drove my family crazy. So I had to find a way to occupy myself at night. So I got a little desk in a corner and I started writing letters to the people I knew. And then I started writing short stories. And that's how I got to the point where I could lay down all of this. And, and really, you've, you've got to really practice and write a lot. I have the newspaper because it requires uh, around seven to eight full pages of writing a week, and I write most of it. Uh, and that means so far in the 10 years of the paper, I've probably written 200,000 articles, but it keeps you sharp. It keeps your your language, your vocabulary, and how you use it and how you look things up and get better at it. I like to think is some of why I got that librarian's compliment. Uh, I have gotten fairly good at this. And, uh, and then writing. You know, yes, well, it is. It is. I mean, you can, you know, the cathartic part is as a release. Okay. And, and of course the response from the veterans is extremely cathartic and, and, uh, you know, it's not necessarily cathartic to be working in this part of it because it's so uh, it's so hard to remember those guys. Uh, you know, back in the last chapter, third from the last, I, I was writing about the fact that I was so upset at that point near the end that I didn't know was the end that I could not remember the faces of the really great guys that I had lost. Only days earlier or weeks earlier, I couldn't see their faces. And I was worried that I would come home and look in the mirror and not be able to see my own face. Well, I came home and I landed at Travis Air Force Base in a plastic bag that they put you on and taped you up to the sides of the fuselage to get as many men wounded in this star lifter that you could. They pulled you out of the plastic bag and then put you on a gurney, and then they lined this hallway at Travis, uh, and then they let the families loose to come in the one end and come down and get, you know, be with their loved ones. And my wife walks up, looks me in the face, and walks right by, does not recognize me. I had to call her back. It's me. It's me from St. Norbert's. I'm your husband. <laughs> <laughs> 
I had like go through a proof, right? Really? Well, my whole, my expression in life had changed. My face had changed. I mean, yes, I'd lost a lot of weight and stuff, but you know, to me, it was like, I don't, she can't see me. I don't have a face either. Uh, like, like I had worried about only, only months earlier when I, you know, before I'd taken the rounds I took. Um, and then, you know, had the, the good fortune to have what's called a survivor's body that you could take three 7.62 bullets through the torso at 10 feet range and live. That calls for an act of God along with the survivor's body, which probably is also an act of God, but I didn't see that at the time. And so here I am with these books that no publisher will pick up. They're just too damned controversial um, I think, and of course I have, I have a background that's not standard. I don't have a believable background. I can't go to a dinner party and tell people what I did. I mean, they will, they, it's like UFOs. Oh, that's really intensely interested, this UFO that you saw or whatever. And then they leave the party and they say, don't ever talk to that crazy person again. And so you can't, you know, and who wants to, you know, you, you want to sit at the coffee shop and talk to someone and say, you ever heard of Bikina Faso? The, the, the capital is Wagadougou. And you know, in the capital of Wagadougou, which is 3.5 million people, and nobody's ever heard of it, used to be Upper Volta. Nobody ever heard of that either. But in the capital of Wagadougou, it's really interesting. All the cabs are yellow vans, Ford and Chevy vans that they drive around in. And to make it interesting, all the cabs have gone to putting art on their cabs. And you know wow. what? What motivated them to do that? They all paint their what? cabs and characters, and all the characters are from The Lion King. <laughs> oh, my goodness. <laughs> well, that's not a believable story, Yvonne. And so you're, you're back, and then you can even go on the Internet, and, and it took me like 45 minutes to find an illustration of that because somebody was calling me on it saying, you know, that's got to be totally bullshit, another Strauss story. Well, it was a Strauss story, but it was another one of those that was in reality. And, uh, you know, it, it, it just, it, that makes returning even from that difficult. Now, the CIA time was was not as violent as Vietnam, of course, but, you know, there was still wet work involved. Wet work is the term that's used for, you know, working in blood. Right. But I was a team leader, so technically I wasn't really, I wasn't a knuckle dragger. I wasn't an applicant, uh, an applier of it. I was a commander of it. And so I would, you know, make the decision, but I didn't have to, you know, go through the implementation process, only the preamble and then the results of that, which which can be can be punishing as well. But, you know, I, I know I ended up in that because there's something about you know, I read long before I went to Vietnam, not long before, but shortly before I read a story in Red Book magazine. Uh, it was actually written by a woman. And what struck me by the story was it was a Vietnam War story, short one. And I thought, huh? well, this doesn't seem to make sense. At that time, I didn't know there were women in Vietnam, some of whom got stuck in real bad situations, by the way. They wouldn't be called combat veterans. They'd just be right. called called women in difficult circumstance uh, but she well, we had written lost a, short a lot story. of women in vietnam that, i know that i know they have d 
disappeared from history because people didn't think women supposed to be in Vietnam. We lost a lot of women in combat. Man, they were, you know, I fought, I fought the NBA and they had, they had women that were good. They were tough and they were good. And, uh, and they fought, I mean, viciously. I mean, the, the NBA, as I portray in my books, was not this bunch of wimps. These were smaller versions of the United States Marine Corps, and they had honor. Right. Uh, several times they acted with that honor in our books. Once we all left our packs and everything to go fight a group of them because we had to travel light for about 10 kilometers and then fight them and come back. Well, we, while we were gone, Another NBA unit found our stuff, and then they drove a stake in and put the commanding officer of the unit's helmet on it to let us know that they'd found our stuff and left it just like it was. Wow. How bizarre was I mean, that was, that was one of those strange moments. Or, or when we fought them to a standstill at Hill 975 down at the base of the river, we, they came at us, and we took them down and we went back at them and it was a, it was a charnel house. And then we stopped and it was around 2 a.m. in the morning. It was raining. And a couple of them came out to retrieve their dead on the river mud flat. And so I said, well, let's go get some of ours. And like in the armistice of World War I, we go out and we're among them. And they're among us. We're all getting our dead and no one makes one move of violence or shooting or anything. And we all recovered our dead. Then we went back and then everything started, you know, all over again. But that moment in time was, was a weird one. Uh, uh, just like the driven stake with the helmet on. And I just, I wish I had that star on that helmet that the guy had stuck there and, or would have some, see in combat or in war and also in the CIA, it's like working a mosaic you got 17 pieces that you put here, 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 and there, and no matter how well you place them, you never get to stand back and see the picture the mosaic is building. And so right. you're always in this, you know, miss, you know, the guys that got medevaced from my unit and were wounded, I never, you never even find out what happened to them, ever. I mean, Cowboy flew a Sky Raider over me dropping bombs, and he would come so low in this wonderful propeller plane, he and his friends, that he would wave from the window. And he gave me, Junior, I didn't care for at the time as a nickname, but he called me Flash over the radio. He thought I was Flash Gordon, and I loved that. And he was Cowboy up there, self, self-named up there. And he would wave at me, and I can still see him waving out of that cockpit because these planes flew real slow and could come down real low, and he'd tip the wing down, then he'd wave at me. Uh, I, I tried to track Cowboy down through the association of former Sky Raider pilots, but no one ever knew anybody with that nickname. But a lot of people just had nicknames. I mean, I've, I've found a few, uh, but very, very few people do. And you never you know, you got never it? You never, knew his, you never knew his real name? No, no, I never found out who he really was, ever. I mean, they come out, fly over you, drop bombs, take care of you, and then they're gone. The guys at the battery, Army battery that fired for us, uh, Ripcord, uh, uh-huh. you know, you, you never found out really who they were. Everything was in code or a nickname, and, and you know, it's it's really, really kind of funny. And uh, I went to... 
I went to when I when I was long home, maybe on 1982 or 1983. I'd come home in 1968, um, and so it was quite a while. I had an insurance office, uh, an outlying insurance office out of the main one in Albuquerque, and it was in a place called Socorro, New Mexico. In my books, uh, one of my characters is named Socorro, by the way, for that town. Because when I went to that town to check on my agent who was there, she took me to her bank to meet her banker, Home Burson. And Home Burson was there, and as I was talking to Home Burson, a real nice uh, country gentleman, a, a guy walked up behind me and said, Is that you, Junior? And the hair went up on my neck. And I flipped around, and it was one of my guys uh, right there. And so we talked for – we only had a brief time because business was being done. But I said, you know, I will be back next Thursday. We will meet for lunch and talk. And he said, great. And then he left. And so the next Thursday, I drove to Socorro, 88 miles away, and got there. And uh, home person was there, and I walked in and said, you know, where is he? And Holmes said, this is the first day of work he's missed in eight years. And he didn't call in. Let's go to his home. And I said, okay. So we jumped in the car and drove to the home and knocked on the screen door. And his wife came to the door. And I said, you know, I, I came for lunch. I'm Jim Strauss. But she said, he can't talk to you. And so home is going, why not? I said, I grabbed home. I said, come on, let's go. And so we left and home couldn't understand why he couldn't talk to me. I took a long time to accommodate that because I was deeply hurt. You know, I felt bad enough about my performance as junior. And I just mm-hmm. thought, well, there's more confirmation of that. Uh, but, you know, and of course my wife, being a wonderful therapist she is on this sort of thing says you know you're always thinking it's you mr egomaniac it's him yeah, it's not always about you yeah yeah it's not always about me it, it, what <laughs> happened got, is when he saw you it brought up all of the things that everything. he tried to keep pushed down because that's a lot of what we did it's like me being in san clemente with those other guys who weren't vietnam veterans and right. then I didn't have to, I could not, you know, up at, I'd stay awake at night because I didn't want to deal with the dreams, not right. nightmares, but those, those particular dreams. Uh, and the dreams can be worse than a nightmare because a nightmare you have and you're shattered by it, you wake up and then you recover the unsettling dreams. You don't, they just keep playing with you. You want to hear an unsettling dream? I wake up at night on occasion, and I see this twisting road coming down a mountainside. And sitting on both sides of the road are Vietnamese people in their typical squatting positions. And they're all staring at me. They're not blinking. Their dark eyes are just staring. They have no expression. And I look at them, and they look back at me. And that's the dream. And I never get to know who those people are, they're not recognizable. I mean, I didn't associate much with locals when I was there because I was in deep conflict in a deep valley with the North Vietnamese Army itself. I wasn't dealing with uh, the civilian, uh, you know, guerrillas or any of that. I I had the 
the trained North Vietnamese army down there. And so where did they come from? Where does the dream, where do these people come from? Who are they? But maybe every once in a while. That, maybe it's the people that helped you in combat that you never got to thank. Well, it is, except why wouldn't they be Americans? Why would they be Vietnamese? I had a great Montagnard, uh, Nguyen, my Montagnard scout. Uh, unfortunately, the guy that was the translator, because he spoke the Montagnard language, one of the dialects, and not English, he got killed. So that left me with my scout sergeant, who didn't speak English, but somehow my 17-year-old radio operator developed a relationship with Nguyen, and, uh, who mostly remained silent. And so he'd go translate, and I said, you don't speak his dialect. You're 17 years old. For Christ's sake, you barely speak English. And he's going, I-, I don't know. I just know what he means, what he said. So then I'd talk to my radio operator, Fussner, and then he would talk to me, and then we would, we would, we would actually get things accomplished uh, that way. Uh, although Nguyen didn't need much in communication, he became my best protector there. Uh, and he was always hanging around just in case someone had the idea that they needed a new company commander, which <laughs> basically... This the way they get one, right? I mean, I had an uncle and who told me the truth, and I didn't know it because it wasn't believable. I was an FNG when I was a kid, and here I am in college, my sophomore year, and we go to my uncle's house who drinks too much, and he's abusive, and he's a, a salesman for a pharmaceutical company, and all these, but he's a real egomaniac and all that stuff. So, But one day he says, you, you know, when he's, He's three sheets to the wind. You want to go up and see my war artifacts, my stuff I brought back? And I said, sure, Uncle Jim. And I remembered that he had fought as a staff sergeant in the army from Normandy all the way to Germany. Uh, and, and that's all anybody ever said in the family. So I'm going, what artifacts? So I go up to his attic with him, and he starts bringing out German helmets and a Luger and all this other stuff, and I'm just entranced as a kid, right? You never see stuff like that. I mean, I never handled, he had a spoon with a real swastika on it, you know. It's just bizarre stuff, but very meaningful to me. And so he's sitting there drinking straight from his bottle of Bacardi Light, and I said to him, just out of nowhere, I said, what was the worst thing that happened to you in the war, Uncle Jim? And he said, well... I was the platoon sergeant, you see, as we came across from Normandy on our way to Germany. And every once in a while, we'd get a really bad platoon commander. And my job was to kill him. And I said, what? He said, yeah. What do you do if you have a bad platoon commander in combat? You got to get rid of him. You can't report him. You got to get rid of him. And I said, oh, yeah, really? Okay, fine. Nice night, Uncle Jim. So I went downstairs and completely discarded the whole conversation until I was a company commander in Vietnam. And the gunny said, the last six guys were killed by our own men. Do you want to be one of them? And I went, Uncle Jim was telling the truth. Oh, yeah. Holy cow. Holy cow. Uncle Jim isn't with us anymore, so I can... I can say that, but, uh, and, and he came back with decorations like me and, you know, uh, portrayed as sort of a 
sort of a war hero, something else you never want to be as a war hero, by the way, was people who've experienced that in one way or another call it the hero turds uh, syndrome. Why? Because when you become a hero, everybody honors you and holds you up. And then a little time goes by and they want to pull that little stool out from under you and bring you back to their size because you uh-huh. got to be too big. And especially men, especially other men. But they don't pull you back to their size. They pull you down until you're this mush on the floor. And you're not ready to handle that because you've of the experiences you've had that got you all that stuff. You're not ready to... You're ready for anybody can handle that. My God, we, I, we here's the Profiles and Courage Award. That's how I met uh, Jim Webb, uh, who not met. That's how I rejoined Jim Webb, secretary, who became secretary of the Navy. He was uh, undersecretary of reserve affairs when they sent him to Kirkland Air Force Base to give me the Profiles and Courage Award. So these thousand people sit out there, and I'm there, and my wife turns out to get mad later on because I thought three people would show up. And it was this giant, giant affair with all these admirals and generals. Oh, God. So I'm called to the podium, which is like 50 yards away. So I get out of my chair. and I go to the podium, and I'm supposed to say a few words while they give me this big plaque and all that other stuff. And I looked up, and I said, Webb, is that you? You're that Webb? And he looked down, and he said, you're that Strauss? And I said, yeah, we had been each, on each other's flank in the same battalion in Vietnam. And we'd seen each other off and on, you know, have a cup of coffee next to a rice paddy or run into each other at a CP. He was fabulous over there, fabulously regarded by his men, by the way, not like me. In, in fact, you know, he had a little lecture for me one day about how I had to kind of change my behavior. Uh, and I did. I got better. Uh, but nevertheless, so he, he, we, I don't speak. He hands me the plaque. He said, let's go to the bar. And we walk <laughs> off and all these general, everybody's left behind us. We go to the bar. He won't even let any of these admirals or generals in the bar. And we sit there for three hours till we're totally stoned. And, uh, and then he went back to, uh, back to Washington. Uh, he wasn't secretary of the Navy then he was undersecretary of that. And then when he was, uh, inaugurated into secretary of the Navy, he invited me and I went there and, and then he invited me to the Pentagon the next day where his office was going to be or is. And, uh, so I went in and, and then he said, just, you know, go around the Pentagon and see what you think. And so I walked around for a bit and then we met for lunch and we're meeting for lunch. And he says, you know, I was going to ask you if you wanted to have a position under me in this whole thing here but I can't do that. And I said, Oh God, what'd you find out? He said, it's not anything I found out. I didn't do your background. Uh, Since this morning, I've had five written complaints about your behavior. You don't treat flag officers with the respect they demand. Well, no, I didn't. (laughs) I, I asked one admiral, I said, you know, how could you possibly be an admiral in Navy and have four ribbons on your chest? Right. Well, that did not go down well, and it, it just uh, you, you don't say things like that to those kinds of people. Not work in the Pentagon anyway. So I went home. Well, you're not going to believe this, James. We have reached almost the end of our show. 
Oh, well, I didn't mean to take it all up that way. Of course, that was why I brought well, you on. But I do want you to tell everybody where your books can be found. Oh, well, they're all on Amazon, all seven under James Strauss. And, you know, The Bering Sea, The 30 Days of September. I have a uh, – uh, uh, actually, I've, I've got a, a series of novels out about an asteroid hitting the planet and what happens after – 80% of it is true, by the way, the facilities and everything else that I use as the background for this. And even Star Black, the name of the protagonist, is a real, real woman from my youth. So I think, you know, I, I think it's interesting stuff, but that would, you know, what writer wouldn't say that? Uh, so I'm not expecting anybody from the show to read this and send me a, uh, an email and say, you know, this is uh, this is the greatest thing I've ever read, like the librarian who will be enshrined. I've, I cut out her her thing and I pasted it on my uh, on the right next to your name and number is is her compliment to keep me going. And and uh, and on my email address is Antares Productions, Antares being the star in series, A-N-T-A-R-E-S Productions at Charter.net. I stole the name from the Antares pro- project in Los Alamos, where I worked for a while, the laser fusion project that got canceled. So I just incorporated and used their name. Anyway, Wonderful. it's been a pleasure. Well, it has been, and, and it brought back a whole lot of, of things from from that era because that was our war. Yeah, every every generation or every other generation has their own war. My mother and daddy's and my late husband's was World War Two, and our war was Korea and Vietnam. So it, it brought back a lot, and and I lost a lot of friends over there. A lot of a lot of kids I went to school with, and I hope that we never get to the point where we treat our our returning vets the way we retreated our vets coming back from Vietnam ever again. Well, and- that was- I don't think we will, but I'm worried right now about how we treat our fellow citizens in this situation. One day at a time, my friend. One day at a time. I know. Well, thank you. All we can do, and I just keep, I just keep putting stuff up. But I, I would like for you to come back, so we'll set it up for you to come back because you, you're amazing, an amazing guest. And thank you. When this show gets up in the archives, I will. Tag you in it so you can spread it around. Okay, I will so do. Thank you, and you, of course, because having this show means a lot to a lot of people. I'm sure it means a lot to me because I, I listen in when I can't, you know, when I'm not on as a guest, I can listen. And right. you come up with some really interesting stuff that hasn't occurred to me. And I think, you know, all of us need this education and wariness. Be wary. Be an observer. Do not exactly. like your leaders. Your job is to question and criticize. That's well, the American way. Well, I trust way. nothing and question everything. I know. <laughs> <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, this has been Off the Chain. I'm your host, Yvonne Mason, with my guest, author James Strauss. Check him out on Amazon. Friend him. He is an interesting character. And Monday night at 8 o'clock, my guest will be author Elsie Hayden. She has been on before, and she does have a new book out. And in this in this time that we are now in, yes, 
just like I've always done, I trust nothing and question everything. Lost some some people on my page for it, but if they can't take the heat, then they need to get out of my kitchen is all I'm going to say, ladies and gentlemen. I am not unkind. I do not berate. I do listen. I am a great listener, but I will happily agree to disagree, and most people can't handle that, right, James? You've got it. I mean, I live it, uh, or I wouldn't have the newspaper. I do controversial as it remains as you are which i much enjoy so with that we will say good night and we will see you all again on monday night and we are now off the air my friend so i am going to let you go so you can get back to your family okay i hope uh you know i don't know where any of this goes when we start talking because i have no script uh i don't either that's what uh, that's why it's called off the chain well, that's wonderful because I think you get more, more real credible stuff that way, uh, rather than you know we get so tired. Of, I mean, I get so tired. Of, why did they give these readers to the presidents and everything? Why can't someone stand up there and just talk to us? Uh, you know, our because leaders. They, they, they don't to, need a. They don't. They don't. They don't need script writers. I'm going to tell you. Yeah. They really don't. And if you get in trouble, you no. get in trouble. It's just the nature of the beast. You deal with it. Yeah, well, if nothing else, Donald Trump has proven that, okay, that there's a lot more liberal nature that you can have and survive as president than otherwise. Exactly. That people thought before. Okay, kid? All right, my All friend, right. I will I will get this thing up and I will get it to you so you can spread around the wealth. You got it. Thank you. Bye-bye. All right, darling. Talk to you later. <laughs> Bye-bye. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.